Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Exploring Reality. Today, we have a fun devil's advocate debate between two friends of mine. Stay tuned. What's going on, guys? Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. Dream. Well, okay, so before we get started on everything, links to both of your stuff here is going to be in the description of the live stream. Um, Kyle, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself to everybody, let everybody know who you are, and then we'll get to Emerson. Yeah, so uh, my name's uh, Kyle Allender. I run the Christian Ideals YouTube channel. Um, this was my idea because I wanted to, you know, I like devil's advocate so i like to play the skeptic right even though i'm not an atheist myself i want to like you know understand the other side and you know i've studied it pretty pretty detailed for the last few years and so like for me it's like i want to you know like get people to like okay you want to defend (laughs) the position that you don't agree with that way it's it's when you do that you sort of have a more objective stance on the topic right so that's why um, that's why I'm really excited for this debate because um, we're arguing for positions that we don't hold to, right? It's literally the opposite of our own positions. So, um, so yeah, I think that's that's. I'm glad that uh, Emerson agreed to this debate, and I'm glad that you're hosting it and stuff. So, I just want to point that out there. This was my idea, but um, but yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks, Kyle Emerson. Yeah, um, I'm happy to do this too. I think it's a good exercise in, you know, uh, intellectual empathy and trying to, um, understand the other point of view well enough that you can actually defend it in a way that they would be happy with. Yeah. I think that there's great value in that. And it, I think it strengthens, uh, both sides, you know, it, mm-hmm. it uh, brings us closer to the truth of the matter. Um, but, oh yeah. And I, I have a YouTube channel as well, just called Emerson green where I upload, podcasts i have a podcast called walden pod and another one called counter apologetics which is more about philosophy of religion but yeah thank you for having me yeah no thank you both of you for doing this and i guess shameless plug here without giving too much information is i i too have a devil's advocate debate coming up here in a few weeks so uh to any of my normal listeners be on the lookout for that all right so for just as a reminder here, um, Emerson, we'll start with you with a 15-minute opening. Then we'll go to Kyle with his 15-minute opening. We'll go 10-minute rebuttals, 10-minute cross-examination, and then loosely a 20-minute open dialogue. I'll probably let it keep going if it's really, really good. Um, we're still good with that? Cool. All right. Well, Kyle, I'm going to kick you out so Emerson can get ready here. Emerson, the stage is all yours in where's my mouse three two one. Oh, you made that pretty dramatic um anyway <laughs> so thank you for having me um i count on a privilege to be exercising my emotional and intellectual empathy with theists i think that's a great value of these devil's advocate debates i hope kyle and i uh, as well as everyone watching can come away with a deeper understanding of theism and atheism Today, we're interested in discussing some of the arguments that make belief in God reasonable or unreasonable. In my opening, I'm going to present four arguments which I think make it reasonable to believe that God exists. First, what do I mean by God? 
I'll be defending a sort of bare philosophical theism, but nonetheless something approximating the traditional view of God, worshipped by many Christians, Muslims, Jews, and others. A necessary, perfectly loving, morally perfect, conscious personal being, person in the sense that he's someone with whom we interact, um, of infinite power at the foundation of reality. And due to, con- due to uh, time constraints, we won't be able to explore different models of God. Just suffice to say that we could make some alterations to those divine attributes while remaining in the ballpark of perfect being theism. So, I think the arguments for and against God are cumulative. Uh, this is the case for any scientific or historical theory. We don't produce just one piece of evidence for our hypothesis. We produce many pieces of evidence, which together make the hypothesis probable. Um, so, I'm going to offer four lines of evidence that we're more likely to observe in a theistic world than an atheistic world. The existence of consciousness, psychophysical harmony, widespread theistic belief, and the experience of God. So first, the existence of consciousness. There are many arguments from consciousness, but this one is incredibly simple. Here's the observation. Consciousness exists, or alternatively, there's at least one conscious agent. Now, it's a trivial point that an observation is evidence favoring one hypothesis over another if one of our two hypotheses assigns a bigger probability to that observation than the other. Since God is a conscious being, theism entails the existence of consciousness. The probability assigned to consciousness exists is one. 100%. Atheism plainly does not entail that consciousness exists. Neither does naturalism or the hypothesis of indifference. Thus, theism assigns a higher probability to the existence of consciousness than its rivals, from which it follows straightforwardly that our observation, consciousness exists, is evidence favoring theism over naturalism. So this this, uh, argument was developed by an atheist philosopher of religion, Jeff Lauder. Quote, The present inability of science to explain consciousness plays no role whatsoever in the argument. What's doing work in the argument is the fact that theism entails that consciousness exists, whereas naturalism has no such entailment. End quote. Next, psychophysical harmony. So, the argument from psychophysical harmony can be considered a fine-tuning argument focused on consciousness. In recent years, philosophers of mind have been puzzled to notice strikingly harmonious relations between conscious states and physical states and conscious states with one another. Our nature as conscious beings is partially or wholly dependent on laws of nature, laws which conceivably could have varied in dramatic ways. So our nature as conscious beings conceivably could have been dramatically different in innumerable disharmonious ways. For example, we can imagine terrible pain, pleasure, inversion scenarios, or more hedonically neutral scenarios that we're nonetheless fortunate to have avoided. Uh, What's striking is that a given functional role has been correlated with a subjective experience that rationalizes, justifies, or otherwise make sense of that functional role. Presumably, the causal skeleton of the world could have remained in place, thus making no difference to natural selection, while altering the psychophysical laws such that the physical, functional states correlated with phenomenal states that did not rationalize, justify, or otherwise make sense of that behavior. In other words, the external, physical world could have remained fixed, while the internal, phenomenal world could have been chaotic or even hellish as a consequence of the altered, non-finely tuned psychophysical laws. So it's perhaps worth noting that most of the philosophers who have brought this problem of harmony to the fore are not theists. They have no hidden theistic agenda. In fact, some of them are outspoken atheists. Interestingly, some of these secular philosophers have noted that a benevolent God could solve this problem, since God would have the power to alter the natural laws and would have a motivation to design laws that brought about valuable things, such as consciousness and psychophysical harmony. Theism has a unique advantage over atheism in its ability to predict valuable states of affairs. 
an indifferent universe doesn't care if it brings about valuable or disvaluable things. So, basically, conscious beings didn't have to have the exact nature that we have. Since God has reason to design the psychophysical laws in order to bring about the values realized by consciousness and by psychophysical harmony, theism makes harmony much more likely than it would otherwise be. Certainly more likely than a hypothesis of indifference, in which fundamental reality has no tendency to realize value or disvalue. So we've touched on these already, but um, let's address two common objections to psychophysical harmony. Doesn't natural selection solve this problem? So natural selection has no influence over laws of nature, and psychophysical laws are a subset of natural laws. Just as natural selection can't affect laws of gravity, it can't affect psychophysical laws. And this isn't to undermine evolutionary explanations in biology, only to say that laws of nature are ontologically prior, as it were, to natural selection. This argument is about fortunately tuned natural laws, which conceivably could have been quite different. A hypothesis of indifference leaves us completely in the dark as to what explains our good fortune, whereas the hypothesis that there is a perfectly loving, omnipotent designer of nature makes quick work of this problem. Next, the multiverse. So, could the multiverse explain psychophysical fine-tuning? The multiverse, anthropic principle, observer selection effect, etc. could not explain psychophysical harmony, since observers could find themselves in disharmonious universes. While it's true that observers could not find themselves in non-life-permitting universes, observers could find themselves in disharmonious universes. Needless to say, you would not want to be one of these unlucky observers, and that's a key point for the argument. We're fortunate to not be one of these observers, and not just because disharmony would be unpleasant or bad for conscious creatures, uh, but because the number of disharmoniously tuned universes is vastly greater than the number of harmonious universes. So maybe we won the cosmic lottery, but theism can offer a better explanation than that. Next, widespread theistic belief. So the concept of God is deeply embedded in the human psyche. Human faculties overwhelmingly tend to produce belief in something godlike, just as they overwhelmingly tend to produce belief in the external world, other minds, induction, and a laundry list of true beliefs so mundane we hardly notice them. This is the case for the vast majority of the world's population now and throughout history. So, um, uh, I don't know if we have time to get into this now, but on the question of whether we're naturally disposed to believe in God, or whether we're indoctrinated or otherwise taught to believe in God, I would point to the Cognition, Religion, and Theology Project, which was a major research endeavor that purports to show that humans have a natural tendency to believe in God. So, uh, maybe that'll come up during the rebuttal. So, about 19 out of 20 people believe in God. If 19 out of 20 people in the room see something, and you don't, what makes you think it's everyone else who's missing something? We can surely admit that our faculties are fallible, but generally trustworthy. It should give the atheist pause when they realize that they're in the minority here. Humility should be the watchword. And yet, humility is not the word that springs to mind after even a few minutes with the atheist and skeptic community online. If God is a delusion, why isn't it like other delusions? Why isn't theism like Flat Earth? Flat Earth doesn't have the same widespread acceptance or intellectual pedigree as theism. To quote John Stuart Mill, As the human intellect, though weak, is not essentially perverted, there is a certain presumption of the truth of any opinion held by many human minds, requiring to be rebutted by assigning some other real or possible cause for its prevalence. So, um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, about 19 out of 20 people believe in God. So, imagine we designed a computer program that could solve, you know, advanced problems of some nature or another. And it was experimental technology, it wasn't perfect, but it produced the right answer far more often than not, you know, like far greater than chance. 
So say we asked 20 computers the same question, and 19 of them produced the same answer. Clearly, this would be strong evidence in favor of one answer over the other. It's not impossible that the one is right and the 19 are wrong, but the odds are against it. So many atheists and skeptics would be quick to reply that this is a blatant appeal to popularity fallacy. You know, just because a belief is widely accepted doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And when stated that way, it's that's obviously correct. Popularity isn't conclusive proof for a proposition. I don't know if anyone has ever said that it is. But what I'm claiming is that widespread acceptance provides inductive support for a proposition. And why is that? Because our cognitive faculties are generally truth-tracking, and because most of our beliefs are true. To quote epistemologist Michael Humer, Ad populum is the fallacy of believing something because most people believe it. But what exactly, what exactly is supposed to be wrong with that? Maybe the idea is that most people believing P is irrelevant to whether P is true. In other words, if most people believe it, that doesn't mean it's more likely to be correct. Problem. This is obviously wrong. If most people believe something, that obviously does make it more likely to be correct than if most people don't believe it. If most of our beliefs weren't true, the human species would die out pretty much immediately. Sometimes people elaborate on this fallacy by citing examples of beliefs that were once widely held but were false. For example, that the sun orbits the earth. So let me now just mention a few typical examples of beliefs that are widely held. Dogs exist. It is generally lighter in the daytime than at night. The sky is blue, not red, green, or yellow. There are more than three human beings in existence. Human beings commonly have beliefs and desires. Putting your hand in a fire hurts. Six is more than two. The earth has existed for more than five minutes. When you drop rocks near the surface of the earth, they generally fall. I'm sure you can extend that list for a long time. Now, which would you say there are more of? Widely held beliefs that are true or ones that are false? End quote. If human cognitive faculties, which are generally truth-tracking, overwhelmingly produce the same conclusion, that fact does provide defeasible evidential support for that conclusion. Of the beliefs that are held by most people, most of them are true. They're just so mundane that we typically don't notice them. So the fact that most people throughout history and in the present believe in God does make God's existence more probable than it otherwise would have been. For one, it was produced by generally truth-tracking faculties far more often than it wasn't. And second, its likelihood is raised as a simple matter of probability since most of the beliefs that are held by most people are true. Next, the experience of God. So those who experience God are rational in believing in him. In the ordinary experiential states of seeing, feeling, hearing, etc., we naturally form beliefs about the external world. These beliefs are appropriately grounded in experience. If it seems to you that you're seeing an object, or for that matter a person, then in the absence of any defeaters, you have some justification for believing that there really is an object, person, etc. It's entirely rational for you to believe so. So, um, maybe this will come up more during the rebuttal, but... Um, uh, can neuroscience explain religious experiences? Um, you know, maybe that'll come up later. Uh, some people also bring up evolutionary explanations like the hyperactive agency detection. Uh, you know, so maybe uh, maybe that'll come up in the rebuttal. But for now, let's uh, let's move along. Some a little short on time. So here's an objection to arguments from religious experience offered by Graham Oppie in his book, The Best Argument Against God. Quote: There are many conditions that predispose towards mystical experience. Ingestion of mind-altering drugs, mescaline, psilocybin, bodily insult, starvation, mortification, extreme exercise, extreme sexual activity, near-death experience, rhythmical activities, meditation, prayer, trance, music, dance, chant, and so forth. These conditions are not noted for their cognitive reliability in other domains. 
they are not positively correlated with performance on standard reasoning and inference tasks. Indeed, they are all very strongly negatively correlated with performance on standard reasoning and inference tasks. End quote. So the problem with Oppie's response here is that the claim has not, nor has it ever been, that religious experiences improve your performance on standard reasoning and inference tasks. The claim is that those who experience these unusual states of consciousness are seeing things that we don't ordinarily see, appreciating truths that ordinarily escape us. They don't improve your SAT score. Our senses and immediate experiences provide a path to truth, one which is quite different from logical inference. Our sense data and experiences put us in touch with reality as well, and it's possible that these non-ordinary states of consciousness are causing us to see and understand in a similar way. So let's move away from religious experience to the more mundane area of memory. Imagine you're accused of a crime on the basis of very convincing evidence, but you know that you didn't do it on the basis of your memory. For you, the immediate evidence of your memory is not defeated by the public evidence against you, of course, this won't do much to convince others who don't have access to your memory, even though the publicly available evidence is the same for everyone. They may be rational in believing you did it. You're rational in believing you didn't do it. You occupy different positions on the grand epistemic landscape since your memory is a source of justification. Sometimes contrary evidence may be strong enough to persuade you that your experiences are deceiving you, but that would require overwhelmingly strong contrary evidence. Even though atheists can provide a good case for their position, unless it meets a very high bar, it won't do much to persuade those who have had the experience of God, nor should it. So, in summary, then, we've seen four respects in which theism provides a better explanation of the world than naturalism. If my opponent is to persuade us otherwise, he must first tear down all the reasons I've presented, and then in their place erect a case of his own to show the opposite. Unless and until he does that, I think we should readily concede that belief in God is reasonable. Thank you. Emerson. Awesome job. Um, let me just reset the timer here. Thank you, Emerson, for that. Um, I'm going to kick you out here so Kyle can get ready here. Kyle, do you want to share yeah. your slides? All right. Can you all see that? We are good. All right. Let's get... Let me, uh, well, as soon as I jump out, you can get started, okay? All right. All right. Um, thanks, Emerson, for that presentation. Um, hopefully in the uh, you know dialogue, we can go back and forth on those sort of points. But here I want to present my case for atheism. So um, I'm going to define naturalism in the, in the broadest sense that I can and compare it with theism. So I'm, I define theism as the hypothesis of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good all being. So theism is a broad category. So we're, again, we're not going to have time to go over like any specific version of theism. When I mean by theism, I just mean perfect being theism, right? And then for naturalism, um, I would define naturalism as natural reality exhausts causal reality, nothing but natural entities and natural causes in a causally closed system. So naturalism is a broad category, right? And so typically naturalism um, is compatible with many different views about the philosophy of mind, about, the, um, about morality, about consciousness, all that stuff, right? And so, you know, naturalism is not materialism. So this allows naturalism to sort of 
um, be much wider than, you know, many people think it is, right? Um, and typically, naturalism is paired with the hypothesis of indifference. And according to the hypothesis of indifference, there is no link between the properties of nature and the properties of value, right? And so naturalism paired with the hypothesis of indifference would entail that there is no all-powerful, all-known, and all-good being. So it, it would preclude the possibility of there being a god, right? Um, here in this debate, I'm not going to be interested in looking at specific models of naturalism, right? There's materialism, of course, but then there's also polarity pluralism, there's panpsychism, there's many different views on this. So I'm not going to be focused on any specific version. We're just going to think of naturalism as a broad category. And this brings me to my, I guess, first important point, which is that one's theory is prior to arguments. And so I know Emerson brought up a lot of, you know, I think four main arguments, right? But it's, for me, it's like, okay, well, why think that the naturalists ought to grant that key premises and arguments that are, you know, why, why should the naturalists grant um, premises that are incompatible with their prior beliefs, right? So the point here is, like, one could present a thousand different arguments against God, right? And I don't think any theist, is, if being consistent with their beliefs, is going to accept any of the premises. If they did grant the premises, then they simply would just need to reevaluate their prior commitments to be logically consistent with one another. This is why if you did find a theist who accepted all the premises in an argument against God, then the best thing for you to do in that case is to help them reevaluate their prior commitments, right? And of course, the same applies for naturalism, right? And so the point here is that theory is prior to arguments. Your views about which claims are true will determine your views about which arguments are sound. When there are disagreements, we should not suppose that trading sets of premises and conclusions will resolve their disagreement. Instead, arguments are good ways of putting together the logical structures of things you already believe to be true, but they are typically bad at resolving any disagreement, right, between the theist and the atheist, right? And so th because of this problem, this, this leads to my sort of methodology, which is that um, you want to minimize commitments and maximize explanation. So when we assess theism and naturalism, we should assess them in terms of our, our comparative worldviews. We want to minimize commitments through simplicity and maximize explanation through explanatory power. And so a worldview, I define worldview as everything you hold to be a non-derivable belief or an axiom. I, I can get more on discussion that later. Basically, an axiom is any non-derivable belief. So like, for example, my belief in cats or dogs are going to be non-derivable because I can't really entail them from my prior beliefs about the world, right? And so in this case, data would be what two comparative worldviews share, right? Now, in terms of simplicity, there are sort of three considerations here. There is ontological, ideological, and theoretical. So on the, on the theoretical dimension, we assess the complexity of the axiomatization itself. This is the function of both the number and complexity of the axioms, right? So that's theoretical. On ideological, we consider the complexity of the lexicon. This is a function of the number and complexity of undefined terms within the axiomatization. And again, what I mean by an axiom is just anything you hold to be non-derivable, right? So I'm talking about a, just a worldview here. And then on the ontological dimension, we consider the complexity and domains over which the quantifiers of your axiomatization range. This takes into account both the numbers and kinds of objects in your worldview. Um, so... I would argue that naturalism on this sort of worldview comparative account is simpler than theism, right? So I would say that naturalism has a slight advantage over a theistic worldview when it comes to theoretical simplicity, since claims about what God has do not feature among the claims that it makes. For naturalism, there can be, again, this is just a toy model, so I don't want to get too much into detail here. But number one, you could say on naturalism, there's initial state, there's laws, and then there's um, outcomes of chanty events. For theism, God wants the initial state, God wants the laws, and God wants, uh, you know, these chanty events, right? But the problem here is that the choices that God makes on this account are going to be brute, 
right? It's going to be a brute fact that God just happens to on for a second. You're uh, of, um, hey, on top Kai. of your worldview, right? So when you compare worldviews, um, you you theory, you lagged out there for a second. So oh. I think we just missed like a good ten seconds. So okay, so I'll give you back. I'll I'll give you back yeah, a few yeah. time a little bit of time here, and then you can just kind of roll back. Just so the, a tiny okay, bit, so okay? yeah, okay. So the point here I want to make here, I guess, briefly for this uh, slide right here, is that every worldview has an all that is clause. That is the objects, events, and global states that there are claims about. So the point here is that claims about God do not compress the information that is required to give a complete account of the natural world without building in God's intention. So you have to build in God's intentions in order to actually account for anything in the natural world. And so with complete to, res- to complete accounts of the natural world, naturalism is ever so slightly better than theism when it comes to its theoretical commitments, right? Um, and we can get more into that later, but that's basically my at least for the first thing. Now, the second thing is, of course, ideological simplicity. So I would say that naturalism has a big advantage in terms of ideological commitments as the vocabulary that you use to describe God as well as the rest of your worldview is going to be more complex than the vocabulary used to describe the natural world. So the point here is that there is more primitive vocabulary that is required for a theistic worldview than a naturalistic worldview. And then finally, there's ontological simplicity, which is that um, on naturalism, the only ontology that you have would be the natural world, while theism has the natural world plus God. Not only this, but that the explanation of natural reality is another primitive commitment in which God wanting the universe to have particular features are among more additional ontological primitives. And so the range of God's choices are additional ontological commitments beyond the natural order, right? Kyle, you're frozen again. Sorry about the technical difficulties, everybody. He's really frozen. Well, while we're waiting on Kyle to Kyle's internet to kind of fix here, Emerson, we'll give him a second to uh, get in here again. Yeah, it feels unfair to contribute at this point. So yeah, yeah. oh yeah, I know I'm not going to. The only thing I'm going to say is I think this is evidence for theism. Yeah, divine intervention. <laughs> His case was going to be too convincing. <laughs> I told him he shouldn't try to download all four seasons of Ozark while he was doing this debate, but he wouldn't. Is that what he's doing? (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll see what happens. Yeah, can I add this to my cumulative case for theism? You, uh, I'm fine with that, honestly. I I think... Oh, you know, I actually do have something to say that I forgot to mention. Um, I'm sure some people who saw my case were like, hey, where's the contingency argument? And it's like... Look, I'm. I like contingency arguments. I think they're good arguments. It's just uh, it takes a while to like do justice to them. Mm-hmm. You know, like it would take up a huge section. Well, and I, I'm really dicey about stage two arguments. Like I think I was that's going to say yeah. the, at, at the end of the day, even if you do put up a contingency argument or some sort of cosmological argument, like what you just did, what you presented was what you'd have to present after the case anyway. Mm-hmm, exactly. it, it seems to me, at least. Um, so. Yeah, it, the contingency arguments, like, they can lay a nice foundation where it's like, yeah, I'm trying to argue for perfect being theism, and, like, you know, this is going to really come in handy when we start getting <laughs> some of that stuff later. But, like, when it comes to um, stage two, you know, which is, like, where mm-hmm. it, it gets important for theism specifically, that's when, like, I can't really in good faith be like, yeah, and it must be God. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, as a Christian, I, I, I never stop at a contingency argument, right? That's why I prefer more like a more Swinburnian case anyway. But, uh, I laughed not because of something you said. I laughed because Kyle <laughs> messaged figured, us yeah. and said, God must have broken the Wi-Fi. <laughs> 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 He's resetting everything right now. Okay, cool. 
but yeah, I like uh, contingency arguments. I'm not really afraid of them, you know, like as an atheist, like I'm fine with there being a necessary being, you know, and I'm even some of the things that are maybe in like no man's land between stage one and stage two, where it's like, Oh, maybe it has to be mental in character. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that too. I mean, um, but there was another argument I wanted to make that I ra- I didn't have enough time for, which is like a moral knowledge argument. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do you know that one? It's like starts yeah. with like an evolutionary debunking argument. Yeah. Yeah. That one's it's a little a good one. Um, yeah. Oh, he he's back. Hey, Kyle. Hey, did uh, I, I'm going to have to restart obviously. Cause <laughs> yeah, you're fine. Um, you don't have to, you don't, I don't think you have to restart all the way. I have the timer paused for you anyway. Um, Emerson and I were just talking about how this is probably an evidential chip for theism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, cause I think my, uh, when I saw the, um, the globe thing on the Simon case, like, wait, the Wi-Fi is out. So that's probably <laughs> not. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Take your time. Get everything right. back to where you were. Yeah. We yeah. Re- so re- which slide I was, um, was I on the simplicity slide or the uh, background knowledge let me, slide? Let me rewind. You were on simplicity. All right, so let's let's continue with that because that was uh, not uh, good. Um, so, anyways, what I was saying. So, the point here is that um, on ontological simplicity, naturalism has an advantage, right? Because there's more primitive vocabulary when you're trying to describe atheistic worldview rather than naturalistic worldview. And then with ontological simplicity, um, it seems that God's choices are going to be ontological, additional ontological commitments, right, in your worldview, right? And so, in that case, um, it's going to be there's going to be more um, baggage there, right? So now let's get into um, background knowledge, right? Um, so Sobel, in response to Swinburne, says that Hume, Mackey, and I find evidence against the prior probability of theism when we think about the barely comprehensible nature or barely comprehensible, comprehensible character of an infinitely powerful and knowledgeable perfectly being, right? Um, and so the point here is that um, this is just inconsistent with our background knowledge, right? And so as, Ma- as Mackey rightly points out, we should have to, you know, point here is that um there's just nothing in our experience that really tells us that there's going to be a being um, like this right everything in our back of knowledge tells us that um intentional beings beings that have intentions are embodied um are limited right we don't have background knowledge that they're unlimited in that sort of respect right so given that theism loses on background knowledge and simplicity then i would argue that it has a low prior probability right and so to overcome this low prior probability we would need really good evidence to um, overcome this uh, initial low prior, right? So that's basically my argument in a nutshell. Now, I would also I think this is a more important point, which is that theism generally has bad explanatory power. Well, what does that mean? Well, my, the point here is that God's actions are really almost never a good explanation for anything, because God's actions has literally infinite degrees of freedom and virtually no limitations. Thus, it is easily consistent with any possible occurrence, and hence it is unable to explain why any outcome pertains over any other possible outcome. And so the point here is that we cannot test any theistic explanation since they all lack a specification of a particular goal. If there is a particular phenomena that theism needs to explain, such as fine-tuning, the universe, consciousness, etc., then we need to know God's intentions for creating such things if theism is to serve as an explanation at all. However, the point here is that if we did have an explanation for why God brought about one particular phenomena over another, then we would have to build in God's intentions, right? So we would have to posit the very things we're trying to explain. Of course, if we're doing this, this would decrease the probability of the hypothesis by us building in a particular divine intention to explain particular divine phenomena, right? Or any phenomena for that matter, right? But the point here, the problem here is that this is 
bad for any hypothesis because we are positing the very things we are trying to explain. And so I would say for this reason, right, for this reason alone, um, pretty much all abductive arguments for theism fail because any phenomena that we can point to that says, okay, this is better explained by theism, well, we're going to have to posit a divine intention in order to explain that, but then we can't explain the, the intention because it's just a brute fact, right? Um, it's, it's, so I would say in that sort of account, it's um, really no, no abductive arguments for theism can really work. And then finally, I would argue that inscrutable evils makes theism highly improbable, right? So Robert Bass, um, he's a philosopher, he's argued that even with a prior probability of 99% for theism, inscrutable evils would outweigh any positive evidence for theism, given that theism is incompatible with gratuitous evils. And so just to give you a quote here, quote, there is greater than a 95.8 chance that there is gratuitous evil, beginning with modest assumptions and a small number of inscrutable evils. For a world containing many inscrutable evils, the probability of gratuitous evils will be high, except where the prior probability of gratuitous evil is very low. Right. So the point here he wants to make here is that even if you basically build in all the evidence for theism and you give it like 99% probable that it's true, right, um, evil would just outweigh it, right, given the amount of inscrutable evils that we see in the world, right? Um, and so I would, I would argue that uh, theism either falsifies or inscrutable evils either falsifies theism or it would make theism highly improbable, right? So premise one, if God exists, there is no gratuitous evil. Premise two, there is gratuitous evil. Conclusion, therefore God does not exist. So I would say that premise two can be replaced by, you know, seven, which is with high probability, 99.8%, there is gratuitous evil conjoined with one that will yield. Therefore, with high probability, God does not exist. And I would say, I would probably argue the same estimation that Robert Bass did, which is around 95%. So even, so basically my point here is that even if, even if the, the prior probability of theism was like 99%, evil would just outweigh all the evidence, basically, right? Um, and again, we can go back and forth in the uh, dialogue with that, but that, that would be my main argument. And then I would finally argue that naturalism is superior to theism in every respect. So naturalism is simpler than theism and has a much higher probability than theism given our background knowledge, right? Um, and, of course, I'm doing worldview comparisons here. Um, furthermore, naturalism has superior explanatory power, given that its initial starting point is limited to natural possibilities and natural laws that govern in an evolving universe. On theism, however, it cannot tell you why you get one set of phenomena over another without building stuff into the hypothesis. I would also argue that theism has an advantage in regards to explain evil, right? Since on naturalism, there is no link between nature and values, and it is, you know, because nature is indifferent to us then um, I would argue that uh, any evil that happens is far less surprising um, on, on naturalism than it is on theism. And finally, I would say that naturalism has an advantage when we look at specific facts of the world. So, for example, consciousness, morality, fine-tuning, and some of the arguments that uh, Emerson brought up might be evidence for theism at first, but the problem is when we narrow down the facts about these things, right, they end up favoring naturalism. For example... Consciousness is evidence for theism, but then when we look at the fact that consciousness depends on brains, that's evidence for naturalism. We look at moral or religious, you know, widespread agreement, we could say, oh, well, you know, that's evidence for theism, but then we look at disagreement, that would be evidence for naturalism, right? So any any example of evidence for theism, when we when we zoom in, we realize, okay, this is actually evidence for naturalism, right? Um, so that would be my sort of main point here in regards to why naturalism is superior. Um, so just given the final probability, number one, theism is less simple, right? So on global worldview comparison, number two, theism is inconsistent with our background knowledge. And so because of these two points, um, it has a low prior probability. 
I would argue that theism has poor explanatory power, right, given that we can't really explain why God does one action over another unless we build in God's intentions. And then finally, um, theism is incompatible with Cthulhu's evils, and there's a high probability that Cthulhu's evils actually exist, right? Um, thus, I would argue that theism has a 95% chance of being false, even with a prior probability of 99%. But of course, I, I don't think the prior probability is 99%, right? So when we actually look at the actual prior probability, which I would say is very low, right? It is more accurate to say that on total evidence, the total probability of theism is less than 1%. And thus, this, this gives atheism, inevitably, I would say, a 99% chance of being true. And so it is far more likely, given these facts, um, that God does not exist. Um, and so that'll, that'll be my, uh, that'll be it, I think, for me. So now we're yeah. switching over to rebuttals. So Kyle, I'm going to kick you out here. And then Emerson, did you prepare anything? Uh, um, no, I don't have a slideshow or prepared state. I just have some notes here. Yeah, I know. I was just, some people type out notes on a doc and then they'll share them or something like that. That's all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Kyle well, and I shared like the, you know, sort of bullet points of what we were going to be talking about. Yep. But yeah, we don't have like prepared rebuttals or anything. Cool, cool. All right. Well, once I kick myself out, you'll be good to go. Cool. Okay. So uh, Kyle talked a lot about method. So let me talk about my methodology here first. Um, so by evidence, I just mean that which makes a hypothesis more probable than it otherwise would have been. So the arguments that I made took a general form of like an observation strongly favors theism over naturalism if theism assigns a higher probability to that observation than uh, naturalism does. So I would grant that uh, naturalists can explain the data if they're uh, provided they're willing to twist themselves into knots and go to some weird places, but that doesn't change the basic judgment that certain observations are more likely on theism than on atheism. So I'm starting with common ground. Um, so some of his complaints about, about theory being prior, it's like, I'm just, I'm a little more interested in what the evidence says. Like, you know, where do the facts push us? So I, with the arguments that I presented, I'm starting with common ground, you know, phenomena that we agree exist, I think. And, uh, you know, starting from commonly held premises and showing that this is evidence favoring theism. And I didn't see too many too many criticisms of 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 the specifics of my argument there. I mean, I know that uh, you know they're opening statements, and also maybe that'll come up more during during Kyle's rebuttal. But um, let me just address a few of the things he said. He says that all abductive arguments fail for theism. That is false. Um, I gave at least three examples in my opening statement of abductive arguments for theism that work. Um, for instance. Uh, you know, consciousness exists is our observation that's entailed by theism, but not by naturalism. Um, so therefore, theism assigns a higher probability to that observation than naturalism. So it's evidence favoring theism. It's pretty straightforward. Um, with widespread theistic belief, we agree that theistic belief is widespread. I don't think he disputed that um, we have a natural tendency to believe in God, um, but he does bring up religious disagreement. So uh, the thing is, there's a there's a point of agreement on 
sort of the core aspect there. Like there's a point like that something godlike exists is a point of agreement, which is why I brought up the uh, I think it's called the cognition uh, religion and theology project. Um, I uh, brought up a slide about it, but yeah, there, of course there's disagreement um, on some of the details, but I think that theists have resources for accounting for that sort of thing, provided they don't have, you know, kind of a ludicrously implausible soteriological scheme. But yeah, the something godlike is a point of agreement. There's widespread theistic belief. We have generally truth-tracking cognitive faculties. Most of the beliefs that are held by most people are true, and most people believe in something godlike. So, I mean, I don't know what's wrong with that argument. Um, I don't think that that's an abductive argument that fails. Yeah, and he also says theism is consistent with any data that is also false. I mean, if by consistent you just mean it in like we can we can explain the data no matter what happens. Yeah, but that's also true for naturalism. So if it's a strike against theism and it's a strike against naturalism, naturalism is consistent with any data. But it's definitely false to say that all the data is, you know, equally expected. You know, like there's nothing that could count against theism that we could observe. That's definitely not true. Um, you know, I would grant that divine hiddenness is prima facie evidence against theism because, you know, hiddenness, quote unquote, is entailed by atheism and not by theism. Um, so atheism assigns a higher probability to hiddenness than theism. So uh, I know we're skipping around here a lot, but I was just taking some notes while Kyle was talking, but he brings up a good point about understated evidence, you know, for instance, with consciousness. So theism entails that consciousness exists or that there's at least one conscious uh, conscious agent. Uh, naturalism doesn't. Okay, so maybe that's evidence for theism, but there are more specific facts about consciousness, like it appears to be dependent on brains. So I would love to hear Kyle explain why that fact favors atheism over theism. Anyway, so yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, he mentions sim the simplicity of naturalism, and there are, I think solipsism is pretty simple, but I don't think we should be solipsists. I think simplicity matters most when two hypotheses have equal explanatory power. Uh, yeah, I mean, if we only cared about simplicity, then shouldn't we be solipsists? There's only one agent. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's simple according to some. By uh, I, I don't remember the uh, exact criteria that Kyle mentioned, but you know, I'm tempted to just say, yeah, naturalism is uh, marginally simpler than theism. Who cares? Like, you know, is it really off limits to say, I don't care that you have a marginally simpler hypothesis? Like, that doesn't seem like quite the same thing as saying, I don't care about logical consistency or something obviously irrational like that. So it's not that I don't care about simplicity at all. But, you know, I mean, would your world really be turned upside down if the marginally less simple hypothesis turned out to be true? Like, would that really just blow your mind and you'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> like, no, I don't think so. I mean, maybe it's your aesthetic preference to have a bare desert-like ontology, but um, maybe it's just that. So he also mentions background knowledge. So yeah, once again, I mean, the prior probability might be lower than naturalism, but what does the evidence say? Where do the facts push us? You know, it's it's out of our, some of the things that theism posits, you know, it's out of our everyday experience. I mean, that's also the case for physics. You know, it's also the case for many of the sciences which posit all these unusual entities that are outside of our ordinary experience. But the point is, we can make observations and we can make arguments that lead us to believe in these things, which is what I think I've done. So, yeah, that point doesn't really land with me. He also mentions the poor explanatory power of theism. So, historically, God has performed a lot of explanatory labor for us. You know, God can explain it like a, a wide array of disparate phenomena, and um, naturalists, you know, once you get rid of 
that entity that does all this explanatory labor, you have to start positing all these ancillary hypotheses and all these weird entities. And sometimes you have to eliminate all these things from your ontology and try to argue that we don't have some of these things. Um, you know, there are very few things I think in philosophy that can explain everything from moral knowledge to particular experiences that human beings have to fine tuning to contingency. God does a lot of explanatory work, or at least he can. That doesn't mean that, you know, nothing could count against theism. Yeah. I I just, uh, once again, I'm not really feeling the push here of, of that point. Um, okay. Problem of evil. Yeah. 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 So, okay. This is where it's going to, uh, to possibly alienate some, some, uh, some theists in the audience. So I think that the kind of perfect being theism that I was outlining at the beginning entails an eternal afterlife for all conscious beings. I think that that is arguably entailed by perfect being theism. So I think that when you look at the, the bigger picture, um, the fact that this life on earth is not going to be, you know, the final word on what happens, I think that opens the way for a fuller story to form. So, this is not about compensation. I'm not talking about compensating creatures for the suffering they've endured. I'm just talking about opening the way for a fuller story to uh, to form. You know, you could focus on evil and ignore the fact that they're, um, you know, on theism. I think that there is this much, much, much bigger story. It would sort of be like watching a movie with, uh, you know, in like the first five minutes, there's all this terrible violence that kind of sets up uh, the rest of the plot. And then you just ignore the entire rest of the movie and just hone in on the five minutes with all the terrible violence and then draw all these conclusions about the movie from that. Like, you know, you have to look at the bigger picture, I think. So I think that the kind of some of the answers that theists have offered to the problem of evil and to the problem of hiddenness, I think, make a lot more sense once you start down the path that I'm talking about. So I fully grant that things like evil and hiddenness are surprising on theism, that they're prima facie evidence against theism. However, I think that, you know, for instance, Josh Rasmussen's great story theodicy or um, certain theodicies that talk about the afterlife or invoke the afterlife, I think that those make a lot more sense once you get over things like eternal conscious torment for people who fail to assent to the right proposition or something very, very implausible like that. So I think once you get a more plausible soteriological scheme, something like the problem of evil, it's not that the suffering is meaningless. It doesn't trivialize the suffering or anything like that. It just evidentially doesn't have the same weight to it. So it looks like I'm almost out of time. So I think I will uh, leave it there for now. Nice job, Emerson. Kyle, you're up. Um, All right. Let me know when you're ready, and I'll kick myself out. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so um, I, 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 again, I appreciate um, this debate, and I appreciate um, Emerson presenting his case. So just a few um, points. Um, I didn't write too much down here, so I'm going to be very brief with each one, each one. I probably won't use the full 10 minutes. We'll see how it goes. So the first argument that he presented was um, the consciousness argument, right? So I on on the version again on naturalism. So I, I I could actually grant this argument for the sake of argument in the sense that I can grant on on a, on a sort of materialistic naturalism. Yeah, that would I think consciousness would would be evidence, right? That supports 
um, theism, right? But then I think it gets a little more complicated when we have a sort of uh, what I call a naturalistic um, idealism, right? So on this sort of account, the, the foundation of reality is, is consciousness, um, but it's just indifferent, right? So that's still compatible with naturalism. It's just it may not be a materialistic um, naturalism, right? So it's not all clear to me that consciousness would actually support theism given that there's you know, there is clearly an alternative um, hypothesis of a sort of naturalized idealism, right? And I actually think uh, a sort of naturalized idealism would be more compatible with our background knowledge, right? Just because um, you have, on, on a sort of perfect being theism, you have this incomprehensible being, God, uh, whereas on a sort of naturalized idealism, this is argued by Bernardo Kashrup, where everyone sort of shares the same conscious subject, right? So, you know, there's this idea of, like, disassociative identity disorder, where, you know, the universal consciousness will sort of, like, disassociate itself into, like, different subjects. Now, the thing is, with, with Kashrup's model, it's still naturalistic, so it's not theism, it's not perfect being theism, and he readily acknowledges this. So, given the fact that we ha we can have a naturalism like that, then I think naturalism would actually entail consciousness, right, under a sort of idealistic uh, naturalism, right? So on that sort of account, then it's not all clear to me that consciousness would actually favor theism. Um, now, for for the next point, which is psychophysical fine-tuning, um, it gets a little more complicated there, right? Um, I would say on that sort of account, um, again, we are dealt... Okay, yeah, you can make the point that there's psychophysical fine-tuning, but then God could have done God could have done it better, right? So the point here is that um, it's not all clear to me that at least given, and yeah, it's true that we can have psychophysical fine-tuning, but then when, when we narrow it down more specifically about this fine-tuning, we realize, okay, there's, there's um, pain that these creatures experience. Um, there doesn't seem to be any sort of um, reason why God chose this particular way to create um, creatures like this, right? And so in order to account for why God um, created creatures like this, we would have to build into the hypothesis that he would do it this way rather than some other way. So the fact that God could have done it better, I think, um, what is at least in, at least it pushes back the argument. It pushes the force of the argument. Um, Again, I could probably, I, I, I do admit that, um, at least for this argument in particular, I didn't write too much down, and it's a new argument, even as, you know, I haven't looked too much into it, so I can't really say too much on on that particular argument. We can go back and forth. Maybe Emerson can clarify what he means on that. So, widespread religious, or widespread theistic belief. Um, yeah, initially, again, initially this might support naturalism or not naturally, but theism, right? But then I think when we narrow it down, when we realize, okay, there's religious disagreement, there's people that disagree about what God actually is, about the nature of God, there's different concepts, there's different models of God. Okay, then then it, it gets a little more tricky to say that uh, theism could, is, that this is evidence for theism, given that um, it's understating the evidence, right? Or at least it's overstating the evidence, right? Um and it's not all clear to me that given that there's different concepts of God, given that there's different ideas of what God may be, right, um, that this disagreement, right, is actually, I would say, um, it's less surprising on, on naturalism. And finally, the experience of God, my same response there, which is that, um, which is my response in regards to the problem of overstated evidence, which is it's just overstating the evidence. It's not actually looking, it's not 
narrowing down, you know, what exactly is this experience that people are having? Um, I mean, yeah, people have experiences, but I mean, there's different, um, they have disagreements about those experiences. So this is, this is, I mean, if, if God really, if there's a perfect being that exists and wants everyone to know about him, it seems pretty obvious, at least to me, that um, he would be willing to provide a uniform experience, right? Where we can all have the same concept of God. But the fact that he didn't do that, I think, is at least a prima facie um, that supports naturalism, right? Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I didn't go for my, <laughs> I know Emerson, he uses his, he uses full 10 minutes, but that's all I have to say on that. And then we can go back and forth in the dialogue and more specifically about why I don't find these arguments, uh, that's convincing. So. Awesome. Thank you, Kyle. All right. So we're going to switch over into our cross examination period. Um, just a reminder of the rules. If you are the cross-examiner, you only get to ask questions. If you're the person being cross-examined, you can't ask questions back. If it's a clarifying question, I'm fine yeah. with that, right? Um, and we'll kind of keep the theme going, and Emerson will go first with his 10 minutes. So um, once I bump myself out, Emerson, your 10 minutes of cross-examination starts. All right. <laughs> Okay, I gotta be honest. I thought we were doing open dialogue, not uh, cross exam. So I actually don't have any questions prepared. Um, oh, I'm fine with skipping. I'm fine with skipping and just we doing. We skip it. Yeah, yeah. We can just okay. do like 30, 40 minutes of dialogue. Then. Let's just do all dialogue. I have questions cool. too, but I'll, I'll, I'll just ask them and then. Yeah, you can just ask them. It doesn't the have dialogue. to be like. A, I am yeah. totally fine with that because I'd yeah. rather have that anyway. <laughs> cool. Give me one second here. Let me just switch up some things here. All right, go ahead, guys. Cool. Um, I just wanted to clarify one one minor point, and then uh, you know you can yeah, yeah. totally free to ask uh, your questions. But um, so as for the first argument, you know the existence of consciousness. You you know rightly point out that there are um, forms of naturalism that posit consciousness as foundational to reality. Well, those models entail the existence of consciousness too. So um, well, the thing is, like we're comparing naturalism and theism. So naturalism doesn't entail that consciousness exists, even though there are like little sub models under the banner of naturalism that do entail that consciousness, consciousness exists. So yeah, it's true that like panpsychism entails that consciousness exists, but you know, panpsychism is like a, a subset of, of naturalism. Whereas when you look at theism, all forms of theism entail that consciousness exists unless they deny that God is a conscious yeah. being or something. So yeah, I mean, if we're comparing naturalism and theism, then naturalism doesn't entail, and uh, theism, you know, arguably does. So it, I think it would still be evidence. Um, and as for the disharmony point, um, yeah, there is some psychophysical disharmony in our world as well. And like, yeah, that would favor um, naturalism over theism. But I think that it's it's swamped by 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 the psychophysical harmony, basically, because just the number, the ways in which things could have gone wrong, it's like, uh, you know, it's pretty expansive. But um, yeah, but there are still things like, you know, schizophrenia. There are examples of, of psychophysical disharmony out there. But as you mentioned, it's it's actually kind of a new argument. So it's Yeah, a, I totally couldn't new. I couldn't say much on that argument because it's pretty new. So mm -hmm. um I that's why I didn't include too much of it in my response. But yeah. Um so yeah, I, I think one of the one of the points about um so naturalism is a broad category. So 
I think it's, it gets a little bit tricky when we, when we define naturalism because then we would define it, it's like, okay, well, naturalism means there's natural reality and co- you know, natural cause of reality, but it's just like, what, what does natural mean? And I feel like you can't really approach naturalism for like an ontologically neutral position, right? Um, you're going to have to narrow it down to a sort of um, either some form of materialism, dualism, or idealism, right? Those are the really, in my mind, those are the three main options among the naturalists. Um, so while you are correct to point out that um, that theism sort of entails consciousness, right? It's not all clear to me that theism entails embodied moral agents or even when we look at more specific facts about consciousness, right? Whereas right. on naturalism, um, you it's more expected, right, on that sort of account. Right, because Is it though? I mean, I was I was just about to say, like, you're totally right that theism doesn't entail embodied conscious agents, but neither does naturalism. I don't think. Well, no, but I think when we when we look at the fact that God could have done it better, right? That God has a much wider range of options, right? The fact like that better how? Um, well, one example is um, God could have, you know, created it where creatures don't experience pain, where they could still have embodied agent. Or, you know, they could be embodied agents and they are able to navigate their environment and learn about moral virtues without having um, pain or having um, false beliefs about the world. Or there's a, there's a lot. Of, I mean, of course, it gets more a little more complicated when we get down to specifics. But I think the fact that there is a large number of um, things within embodied moral agents that don't seem to have any value in, the, in and of themselves would seem to favor a sort of indifference hypothesis, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to look at this inductively, right? right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's... So, like, when it comes to indifference, you know, indifference is better, I think, at predicting, like, a mixed bag. Um, And theism is better at predicting, like, value over disvalue. So that's why I honed in on, like, psychophysical harmony, where if things were just indifferent, the odds are overwhelming that thing, that things would have come out like sort of disvaluable for conscious creatures. Whereas in other cases, it's less clear that the odds are so overwhelming. So it's like, yeah, indifference is, is great when it comes to predicting, you know, like David Hume said, the, the strange mix of good and ill that we observe in the world. But theism is really good at predicting valuable things. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So here's, here's one way I like to look at it. So you, you agree that embodied moral agents are not entailed from theism, right? So they're not logical entailments. No, of course not, but not naturalism either. So, right, so I, I actually, this is where it gets more interesting because on, on, on so we, we both share that idea that neither of, our, neither of our hypotheses, neither of our worldviews entail, there's nothing from the axioms of our worldviews that entail this, right? And so in that case, in both sides, they're gonna be, they're, that's going to be an ontological primitive, right? That's going to be something that we share. Right. The issue comes in when we start to realize all the primitives that exist in our world. Right. So we talk about cats, dogs, um, cars, like specific facts about the world are not entailments from our initial worldview or at least our initial axioms. Right. So these things are what Oppie would call ontological primitives. Right. They're sort of they're they're things we believe about the world and they are. The data that we share, right? So that's the data. But the, the issue that I see is with theism, um, you're going to have more primitives on your worldview than, than on naturalism, 
right? So when you count the number of beliefs or the axioms that you have in your worldview, it seems to me that um, naturalism is going to be far more simpler than theism. And I would say that because these because these are primitives, right? They don't really need to be explained like directly, like because they're not logical entailments of, of the axioms of our worldviews, then they don't actually have to be um, logical entailments of our worldview. And so that's going to be a primitive within our worldview. And when we, I mean, I mean, of course, when we add up the worldviews that we have, right, when we when we compare all the beliefs that we have with with each other, it seems that naturalism is going to have a much smaller set. So basically, you know, think of it like this, okay? We both agree that um, there's an initial state, right? But what a naturalist could do is they, you know, as a naturalist, my, well, <laughs> as a naturalist myself playing the devil's advocate, um, we could just say, well, it's just metaphysically necessary that this is going to be an initial state, whereas you're going to have to say that, no, there's the initial state, but then there's also this God that, that accounts for it, right? And then God wanted these particular, um, the initial state to have these particular phenomena, Right. And so well, my, my, I, I think that God is the necessary being at the foundation of reality, but you think it's some, I mean, assuming you believe in a necessary being as, as a naturalist, you believe in right. a necessary being? Yeah. So, but we both agree that there's an initial state, right? That's, okay. that's a part. Okay. Then. So on my, on my account, then all I have to do is just appeal. If God's metaphysically necessary, right. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to posit anything beyond God. Well, why not apply that? Why not? Why not just cut it off from there? And you know, because we both we both share the position that there's an initial state, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's part of our worldview. That's part of the data. So, what exactly is God doing? That's accounting for the data here. I see. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So you could argue that, like, well, look, you don't need a God because atheists can explain all the data, and I, I'm happy to grant that. But I think that you might have to go to some weird places to explain the data. Um, like I think that there, there, there are there, there are definitely observations that we can point to that are more expected on theism than on naturalism, and it's not that naturalists can't explain it. It's just that they've got to you know bend over backwards to try to explain it. Whereas it's it's really easy for theists. But there's something that I would question sort of fundamentally here, which is just that okay, what if I just grant that naturalism is simpler than theism? I, I mean, like how. How how much what kind of force is that really supposed to have on me? If you say okay, well, naturalism, as you said in your opening statement, naturalism is you know marginally simpler than theism. So now I like stop uh, like paying attention to my religious experiences. Now I like you know don't go to church anymore because when I compare these hypotheses, one of them is marginally simpler than the other one. So like I mean, is that really supposed to push well, me yeah. over the cliff edge here? Like, no, no, no. I wouldn't say simplicity alone. I mean, obviously, I think solipsism would be the simplest view, right? But then the problem with solipsism is it doesn't actually explain anything, right? Um, so in that sense, then I agree that simplicity is not the ultimate virtue, but I would say that explanatory power is. And so the issue here is that because both worldviews, because they share there is like this data that they both share, right? So the question, that's the data that we need to account for, right? And so if the naturalist, as as myself, playing devil's advocate, of course, if the naturalist um, can provide an account of every single one of those within the worldview, because again, we're looking at simplicity in terms of worldviews, then where that's worth it. Because I, I agree that naturalism, I, I would just say that theism and naturalism have equal explanatory power in that sense, right? Because I mean, I think like my argument from evil, for example, I think a theist could explain evil, 
right? Obviously, right? There's always data you can explain away. But the point here is because there's always data you can explain away, you have to look at it in terms of worldviews and not, you know, not just, you know, look at, oh, here's this one thing that's probable or not because, yeah. No, I, if, I think if you so. have any, yeah. <laughs> Go. Well, I mean, I, I like Paul Draper's illustration of like the two jars of jelly beans where it's like one of them has mostly blue beans and some red beans. One of them has mostly red beans and some blue beans. And then we, we don't, we draw some jelly beans. We don't know which one they came from. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we could start. Um, it, I mean, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable way to approach this where it's like, no, we just have to look at the weight of the evidence. Um, you know, so we don't have to just skip all that and say, well, there are red and blue beans in both jars. We, we drew, even though we drew, you know, 90% blue beans and 10% red beans, uh, what, what could we possibly do here? We have to go straight down to like, you know, um, like theoretical comparison stuff and like, you know, checking the prior probability and whatnot. It's like, I don't, I think that's a little too quick. Like, you know, there are things that theism assigns a higher probability to, so it's evidence favoring theism. But I will say, you know, because the simplicity point is interesting, um, you know, like, here's something that's obviously irrational. I don't care about logical consistency. That's obviously yeah. irrational. But if I say, yeah, I don't really care that your theory is, like, marginally simpler, that doesn't seem as clearly irrational. But, I mean, setting that aside, theism has pretty, I would say, a pretty expansive explanatory scope, because God can be invoked to explain just a wide array of phenomena. So, it's not clear to me that God is like a bad explanation or that even that it's not very simple because you posit this one foundational entity and it can explain a very wide array. You know, I mean, like this is part of why Nietzsche lamented the death of God because God did all of this explanatory labor for us, you know, not just in terms of, um, um, you know, the things we've been talking about, like just sort of evidence that seems to favor one over the other, but in terms of like meaning and morality and so forth. And now this entity that did all of this, this, this wide array of explanatory labor for us is gone. And now we have to find new stories for each and every one of these things. So like, you know, how do you think about simplicity? You know, I, I don't know, maybe like I'm willing to grant for the sake of argument that naturalism is simpler, but it are, I mean, it seems simple in some sense to posit one foundational entity that can explain, you know, a super wide array of phenomena. Well, here, here's where I would, pushback. So one of the things you mentioned how oh, we only need this one thing to account for, you know, all these phenomena. But then the issue is in order to account for that, you're going to have to build in God's intention. So God wanted it to be this in this way. Um, and that's going to be where the ontological, because it's not entailed from the hypothesis that, of theism that God's going to have this particular intention, right? And so in that sort of way, then the, the intention itself is going to be a sort of, um, I, would, I would say, an ontological primitive, right? Um, and so if you need a pr if you need an ontological primitive to account for some other ontological primitive, well, I mean, if we both agree that there there's some sort of ontological primitive, why not just admit, okay, that's a part of our worldview that you're going to have, I don't know, a cat or a dog be an ontological primitive. Um, and that's because that's a part of a worldview, then you don't need to invoke this extra category called, you know, you don't need to invoke God's intentions to account for it because any intention that you you build in is going to be an additional ontological primitive on top of the ontological primitive that we already that we already agree on, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So in that case, then I I guess I would just push back and say that um that when it comes to the explanatory power of theism and naturalism, that you have to look at it in terms of axiomatization, where 
Um, if you have certain beliefs that are entailed from other beliefs, right, then that's the explanation. But if you, but if you have certain beliefs that are not entailed, then that's going to be um, your ontological primitive, right? And that's that's what Bram Oppie would call an, an axiom, right? Um, and when you when you compare the axioms of the worldviews, the worldview with the least amount of axioms is going to be the better view, right? Because the axiom is what is doing the explaining. That's what's providing the explanatory account of the hypothesis in question, right? Because there's again, there's nothing entailed from theism that you're going to get this particular phenomena over another. And so, in order to account well, for the, that, I mean, theism does have certain entailments, though. And and like I said, even if it's not entailed, like I think moral. Like that, uh, the existence of moral agents is entailed by theism. The existence of consciousness is entailed by theism. But there are things. I mean, even for things that aren't entailed by theism, there are still things that um, we can assign a higher probability to if we're theists. You know, like psychophysical harmony, than if we're naturalists. And I think that that's that means that we're not on explanatorily equal footing. Which so I don't even know why we're deferring to simplicity to begin with when there's really strong evidence for theism. But even so. You know, the stuff about like, oh, God has to have this intention. It just seems like, it just seems like thin gruel. It just doesn't seem like, like maybe you're right. And like, that, you know, like I, I might quibble with things here and there, but there's a part of me that wants to just like grant it and okay, cool. I mean, is that really enough to, to be a naturalist? I don't know. I, it seems like I might be more interested if I were a naturalist, I'd be more interested in, in evidence than just trying to maintain that naturalism is marginally simpler than theism. Right. So it's not just about simplicity. I I grant that point. Um, but it's about the explanatory power, right? And so I guess, what what is your view on explanatory power, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, I, I mean, I would, could you make that more precise? I mean, explain, like I said, I think if, if something can explain a wide array of phenomena and there are, you know, a wide set of observations that it assigns a higher probability to than the competing hypothesis in question, then it has explanatory power. Yeah, because for me, explanatory power just has to do with the the axiomatization of your worldview, right? So if you have, like for example, I don't think cats can be entailed from from uh you know the the initial like for example, there's the initial state of the universe, right? There's nothing that entails that you're, there's going to be cats from mm-hmm. from that, right? I grant that, but then on on theism, it's the same sort of thing, right? But then the issue is that on theism, you're going to have God in initial state, cats. The initial state and cats are not going to be entailments of theism, right? Um, unless you build stuff in, so you're going to have to build in God's intentions, right? So, um, so in that, so again, we're we're comparing what I'm. I guess what I'm trying to clarify here is I'm I'm looking at the worldview as a whole. I'm not just looking at uh, theism itself, right? But rather, I'm looking at theism as a global worldview, right? Yeah, a yeah, sure. worldview that we share, right? So it, it's about the beliefs we share or the axioms that we share. Right, so when we, when we look at the actions that we share, it seems to me that um, the naturalist, I mean, really, the explanatory power just has to. It really comes down to just accounting for the data, right? Um, I think the main thing I'm walking away from this debate with is that neither of our views entail the existence of cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there another uh, point that you wanted to to move on to, like another argument or? A- thing that you had questions about or um um let me i think most of these you answered in your rebuttal so um i don't know if there are questions from the uh i got one question okay who created god (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know it's funny because i was going to ask you why you don't uh, go around raping and murdering to your heart's content yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
Dear, I just wanted to jump in for a second and just, <laughs> this, this is derailing. Uh, <laughs> you guys want to switch over to Q and a? Yeah. If there okay. are questions, That's yeah. Fine. yeah. I think we got some questions here. So let me, um, pull some stuff up here. Okay. So John Buck says, how do you, res- for Kyle, how do you respond to the argument from psychophysical harmony? So as a naturalist, um, if I were to play devil's advocate, well, first of all, I haven't researched the argument too much. Um, I would just, if I, if I had to give a response, probably just I would respond with God could have done it better. Um, so, you know, because there's psychophysical disharmony, then uh, that would seem to push back at least against the initial uh, the initial force of the argument. But admittedly, I... I haven't looked into this argument, so I, it's hard for me to like actually respond decisively to it. So I, I apologize for that, but yeah, that's totally fine. Um, Just a shameless plug here. I talked to one of the co-authors of the paper on psychophysical harmony on my channel, like a couple weeks ago. So if you want to hear more about that argument, there's like a short version of it where it's just summarized. And then there's like a two hour interview. Cool. All right. Next lone Spartan. Ask, jeez, oh I didn't even read the question. Uh, it's already up, so it's too late now. Kyle, why do chimpanzees still exist if evolution is true? Well, I mean, I would just say they, they're ontological primitives, so. Yeah. Oh, jeez, okay. <laughs> All right, Theus Thinker, uh, question for Kyle again. Is it contradictory to say that God can explain any data and also that we shouldn't expect things like evil? It seems like to be playing both skeptical theist and not. Um, this is a good question. Um, my, if I were playing devil's advocate, I would, I would probably say that, um, there's a wide variety of ways that God could have made the world, um, where there's no evil, right? Um, so God could have actualized a world in which, um, there are certain, you know, because God is omnipotent, you can do anything. So I'm sure there's a world where, you know, you can have valuable things, um, in the world without invoking the existence of any sort of evil in that world. Um, again, this just plain devil's advocate. I, I do admit, you know, I, I find it to be a little troubling that, um, you know, on one hand we want to, we want to say that God can explain any, everything, but then on the other hand, we want to say, well, we wouldn't expect God to do this. It's like, well, hold on. If, if, if like, if your initial argument was God can explain anything, then he should be able to explain evil. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's where it gets a little more complicated. But, I mean, I kind yeah. of addressed this, I think, in the rebuttal where, um, you know, there's a difference between data being consistent with a hypothesis versus data being like more or less expected on a hypothesis. So, I mean, I think it's true that, you know, pretty much all of the data that I know of is consistent with some form of naturalism and some form of theism. Um, but the question is just of, you know, relative probabilities. Like, this is where you can kind of illuminate this with, like, the odds form of Bayes' theorem and start comparing, um, you know, evidence uh, and, and try to decide, you know, if our observations favor theism over naturalism. Yeah, so I, th- I don't think it's contradictory to say that, you know, the data is consistent with theism and consistent with atheism. And then you can still go on to say, but this is still evidence favoring atheism, or this is still evidence favoring theism. Just because you can explain it doesn't mean that you've, you know, gotten rid of the initial probability. Awesome. 
All right. Another question for Kyle. They're all Kyle questions. Though. I know. Well, I, the next one after this, I think, is a question for Emerson. So okay. what are your thoughts on B-theory and does it neglect causation? Um, well, depends on what you mean by causation, but uh, maybe it depends. Uh, I mean, that's kind of – this question is not relevant to the God debate, but I would mm-hmm. say – because I, I mean, I actually do hold a B theory in the actual, like, as a theistic, as a theist, I actually do hold a B theory. So, um, no, I don't think it neglects it. I think in that case, you would just have to change some of the arguments for, like, the Kalam, for example. But, but yeah. yeah. All right. Question for Emerson. How does his great story, Theodicy, favor theism over athe- aesthetic deism? Well, I guess the short answer is that. It doesn't. I mean, not with what we know about right now. I mean, maybe once we see the bigger picture, it would clearly favor one over the other. But I'm saying based on what we know right now. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the case for for many theories, models, you know, uh, explanations that people put forth that like things are kind of, you know, underdetermined. So, yeah, I mean, just saying that there's a creator who who values, you know, for instance, soul building or who values um genuine triumph and tragedy and you know genuine struggle and overcoming of that struggle um yeah that doesn't really narrow it down to like you know theism versus aesthetic theism or something like that but um yeah i mean i'm partial to those kinds of the like soul building i think is what i would default on um more so than anything but um yeah also like i said i think that your soteriological scheme greatly influences how you evidentially weigh evil so um but yeah i mean great story theodicy i mean actually this kind of reminds me of the psychophysical harmony point earlier um if i if i were a naturalist um and i were responding to psychophysical harmony um i wouldn't appeal to disharmony um as if that were like conclusive because there is like far more harmony than disharmony um and we still did kind of win the cosmic lottery on as far as psychophysical harmony the thing is the evidence of psychophysical harmony is underdetermined. Um, like it is, it's equally supportive of certain ideas that are compatible with naturalism, like Thomas Nagel's natural teleology or Philip Goff's like cosmopsychist axiarchism. So, I mean, I'm already sympathetic to those ideas anyway. So psychophysical harmony isn't a problem for my weird forms of naturalism. But yeah, if you're like a kind of like hypothesis of indifference, physicalism, naturalism guy, then, then yeah, that's going to be a huge problem for you. Cool. All right. Kyle, if there are, if there are many different subsections of naturalism, what does that say about its simplicity? Is it still more simple than theism's subsections? Yeah. So, um, I would respond by saying that we're assessing simplicity in terms of axiomatization. So in terms of ideological, ontological, and theoretical, right? I gave those accounts in the beginning of my presentation. And on that sort of account, we're talking about worldviews. So you know, when we talk about worldviews, we're going to have to narrow it down to something in order to account for the data, right? Um, but yeah, that that's basically what what I would respond with. That while it is true that like you know naturalistic idealism is a sort of um, that would be a what's it called? Um, yeah, that would be an that would be a sort of hypothesis of indifference version of naturalism. Um, it's not. I would still argue that naturalism, at least on that account of simplicity, is uh, is simpler, right? The one that I laid out before, but but yeah. Cool. How many more questions are you guys uh, willing to answer here? We're still good, good for a little bit? Or, okay. <laughs> totally. Just making sure. Yeah. All right. We're good. 
Uh, for Kyle, how would building consciousness into a naturalistic worldview via naturalistic idealism not run into a parallel problem to a theist building God's intentions into their worldview? Yeah, so one of the things, um, while it is true that I sort of use naturalistic idealism to sort of account for for um, for that, I, I think that um, we have to look at this in terms of axiomatization, like I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, you have this natural fact that we both sides agree on, but then what the theist is going to do is you're going to say, okay, God has this intention to actualize this, this natural fact, and then there's also God, so God would also be an ontological primitive, right? Um, and so what the, th- what the naturalist is doing here is they're cutting off both God's intention and God himself from the explanation, right, where you just have this, um, this primitive, right, because there's nothing from the axioms of your belief system that actually entails, um, entails that, so that's going to be a primitive, right? Um, this, I'm just, I don't know. I'm trying to be consistent with Oppie's view of uh, worldview comparison here. So if I'm doing it wrong or something like that, I apologize, but, uh, but yeah. All right. I need to start reading these questions before. (laughs) Does the beauty from your majestic hair increase theism's probability? Emerson. Oh, sorry. What was that? Oh, yeah. For, um, for Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. No question. All right. Um, Add that to the cumulative case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> plus, plus Kyle's internet jumping out when he's giving <laughs> yeah. his case. All right. Uh, from invoking theism, can Emerson lay out for us how theism yields its predictions and how this doesn't run into a problems of incommensurably good worlds? Uh, theism yields its predictions based on the model of God, I would say. So, depending on how you conceive of God, I think that has certain entailments, and it it leads to assigning higher probabilities to certain events or entities and so forth than something like fundamental reality being totally and utterly indifferent. You know, it has no tendency to realize value or disvalue, whereas if fundamental reality is not indifferent, and it it does have a tendency to realize value over disvalue, then that can come in handy when you're trying to explain, you know, for instance, psychophysical fine-tuning. But uh, how does the ism yield its predictions and how this doesn't run into problems of incommensurably good worlds? Um, I'm not entirely sure what that means. Kyle, do you, I mean, I know you're friends with with invoking theism. Do you know what what he's saying is, um, so when it, when it, so what he's asking, I think, is um, like, okay, if there is incrementally good worlds, then how can we say that God will create one world over another if they're incrementally good? That's his question. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, this is sort of like the no best of all possible worlds problem. Like, I don't think there is a best of all possible worlds. Um, I think that, you know, it's it's just kind of a category that doesn't exist. So um, you're going to have to stop somewhere. <laughs> like, you're going to have to, you know, create a world that has a certain amount of good, and you could always say, oh, but why doesn't it have even more good? Um, So I think that's always going to apply. And, uh, yeah, I think when you bring in certain theodicies like soul building and the great story theodicy and a certain soteriological scheme, then, like, I I think this sort of problem just doesn't pack the same evidential punch that it it might on other models. All right. I think this is a really interesting question. if God for Emerson, if God was interested in bringing about a great story, wouldn't he uh, start things off with interesting characters rather than billions of years of inanimate matter bumping around? Oh, well, I think there were billions of years of. First of all, the Earth was created six thousand years ago. So, I'm oh, not, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 
I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> no, we're starting to get into like divine psychology more so than just the entailments and predictions of a model. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't he start things off with interesting characters? I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would build up interesting characters, you know, out of the uh, out of the dust of the earth or something. I, I don't know. I mean, again, this feels less like trying to figure out what are the entailments and predictions of a model and more like divine psychology. Um but yeah, I, I don't know. Why wouldn't he create interesting characters from the start rather than later on in the story? I don't know. It doesn't seem like a like a, a major problem um, either way. Yeah, um, it's it's it even seems like you could. I don't know, even I'm not one of the panelists here. I guess I guess you could take even almost like an axiological approach here and kind of take mm-hmm. a few things look look at things that way. But well, once you invoke kind of the great story and like kind of like aesthetic qualities of things these things do get kind of um a little loosey-goosey there (laughs) like i mean you might criticize it for that like oh god is a great artist which means that uh you can do pretty much anything (laughs) and it's like um yeah i mean that's a that's a fair criticism but it also i mean why wouldn't god have these kind of aesthetic Mm -hmm. qualities and preferences like that seems perfectly plausible to me but yeah it does kind of harm predictive power perhaps to say like god is like an artist you know um but it does kind of make sense, you know. It does kind of make sense that God would have these like aesthetic values. All right, from John Buck again. For Kyle, isn't a necessary foundation with an arbitrary amount of power less simple than one with no limit to its power? Well, no. I mean, again, on the account of simplicity that I'm using, we're talking about the worldviews that you, you know, your overall worldview, right? So while it is true that uh, you know. On naturalism, you might have an arbitrary limit to um, the initial state or whatever, right? Um, given Joshua Rasmussen's arguments, the problem is that um, you know you look at cats, for example, and that's going to be an ontological primitive on on a theistic worldview, right? So you got to count that, right? And then you just you keep on going. So I'm looking at simplicity in terms of worldviews, not in terms of the found. You know, I'm not looking at it in terms of like what's the foundation of reality. But rather, I'm looking in terms of total worldviews. So, um, on that sort of account, it it's it just seems pretty obvious that naturalism is always going to be simpler than theism, even if even if the initial state on naturalism is has an arbitrary limit. So, so yeah. All right. I think this is our last question that we have. Um, unless more come up. For both of you, could a theist just classify God as a natural object? Therefore be both a theism and a naturalist a la mormonism yeah you could i mean but i think you'd have to make some concessions if you're not just like playing games with words like with with mormons like you know they at first i was kind of annoyed when i heard some mormons say like oh we're kind of like naturalists and i was like okay whatever but then i found out more about their model of god it's like they think of god as a physical being you know they like god is a lot more like us and we're a lot more like God on Mormonism than in like a perfect being theism. So yeah, yeah it's, it's not actually, I mean, you could think of Mormonism as a weird form of naturalism or as a weird form of theism, if you like, but it is kind of in like, you know, some kind of no man's land, I think. But, you know, I think that lang- I think that, you know, how we use words is <laughs> largely, if not entirely, how they get their meaning. And God is kind of the paradigmatic example of a supernatural thing. So, 
you know, I mean, like God is, is supernatural pretty much by definition, um, especially if he created the natural world and so forth. But um, yeah, I don't have any problem with, with Mormons thinking of themselves as, as naturalists because they do think God is basically like a weird alien or like just some guy or something. So, yeah. yeah. Kyle, yeah. any thoughts? No, yeah, I think um, this would definitely get around the background knowledge argument that I presented earlier because, mm-hmm. you know, if God's, <laughs> if God's... Yeah, uh, yeah a person with like an actual man with a body it's like oh well we know you know there's yeah yeah he's yeah, an embodied so. physical mind yeah so mm-hmm. so yeah all right guys well that's all we got for questions anything you want to say anything you want to kind of cover before we finish out here no i was thinking didn't you want to do um a after show so we can discuss, you know, we could switch yeah, back to our up, normal yeah, selves. Yeah, it's up to you guys. If you guys want to do a post-show still, uh, I'll post a the link to the StreamYard link. And then we can have people join us if they want. It's up to yep. them. But yeah. Oh, yeah. So let yeah, me, that'd be fun. Let me post that real quick into the chat for everybody. Well, I'll just say to the uh, theists, I hope I did some justice to your view. Um, I hope I didn't make a case that you totally hated. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much that we didn't uh, get a chance to get into, you know, like there are certain yeah. objections to the kinds of arguments that I raised that I, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring up or not. And a lot of them didn't come up. So um, I might on my own channel just kind of go through this case again and kind of go through like an expanded opening statement. But, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what theists think if they if they think I did a, an OK job um, defending. <laughs> I think I think you did. I did. I think for what I think it was 20 minutes or 15 minutes that you mm-hmm. had. Um, I think he did great for 15 minutes, right? Like, yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I I meant everything that I said, yeah. like I wasn't being disingenuous or just reading mm-hmm. someone else's script. Like I, I wanted to, um, actually, you know, say things <laughs> that I, yeah. that I meant. <laughs> like, no, this really is evidence for theism. Yeah. And I, for me, if, for me, it's, um, you know, I know I, I cut out in the, in the middle there. So I kind of messed up with my opening statement a little because it got me off track because I was like steamrolling but then yeah I fell off the <laughs> like I was going on the train and just you know um, but I, I will be um, I will be expanding my case so the case that I presented today is like one little part of a larger case for atheism that I'm making right so on my at least on my channel I, I plan to do probably about an hour an hour and a half video going over my case for atheism and trying to present the best case for naturalism that I can um, at least on my end. Um, so, you know, if, if you think that uh, I didn't present like the, you know, I wasn't fair, you know, I apologize with the presentation and stuff, but but I, I do plan to make a, a stronger case later on for atheism um, as a sort of like, you know, devil's advocate sort of way. I mean, it's not gonna be a debate, but just a sort of video. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll, um, I'll probably, because Emerson, you might not be too familiar with my channel, but like my channel's more so for the lay audience i try to like bridge the gap between turek level and academic stuff so people can kind of like get out of that super pop level and more into the academic stuff and so i'll probably be trying to make and you guys can help me out if you want but i'll probably be trying to break it down on both of your arguments in a different video so people can actually understand it for at least my typical viewers so if you guys are interested in helping out with that let me know yeah totally all right well with all of that being said, we can start the post sh- the post show. Tim's already waiting in the lobby, so if anybody else wants to join, um, come on in. 
We'll talk to everybody soon. God bless.